Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 179, The Battle of Karam. This show is free and independent due to member support, and as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to an episode on Viking marriage. And it's inevitable conclusion, Viking divorce. So if you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Brian, Pete, and Kathy for contributing already. When we left off last week, 35 ships had launched from Denmark and set their course for England. As we have been learning, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were now seriously in danger of Vikinger attacks, having lost the protection of the Frankish Coast Guard. Not only that, but over the last approximately 40 years, the Vikingers and the kingdoms that supported them have been growing quite wealthy and powerful from plundering their neighbors and absolutely hammering Scotland and Ireland. And perhaps it was those decades of success that led to an expansion of the scale of their voyages. Because we aren't talking about three ships landing, quickly looting a monastery, and then disappearing before the warbands could be raised. Things had changed. And now we're looking at more than 10 times the number of ships being launched for a single attack. So we're not dealing with a small raiding band looking for opportunistic sites to loot. We're looking at an army. And the question should be asked, if there was an army, what exactly is its purpose? When you're dealing with more than a thousand warriors, they're probably going to have some sort of plan Not only that, but the warriors are going to want to get paid, and you really can't pay for all of that just by sacking an occasional monastery. The cost-benefit ratio would be nightmarish for something like that. They would have to hit either somewhere larger, or have a long-term strategy that would entice the warriors to stick around. So that makes you wonder how the Viking lords pulled this thing off. But they did. And now they were sailing for England. Now, some have claimed that their target was Carhampton, and if that's true, it's very interesting because Carhampton is a very old settlement. It's existed since at least the Iron Age, and the crucial fact for us is that during this period, it was a wealthy estate with a connected and similarly wealthy village. The source of its affluence can be found in the fact that it was one of the stopping off points for the royal entourage when the West Saxon court was mobile, moving from place to place to collect taxes. So over generations, they had developed, and thanks to the influx of royal wealth, the region would likely have been quite a bit richer than many of the other villages. Knowing that gives us a bit of a window into why Carhampton might have been chosen as a target by the Viking army that was sailing down the channel. After all, something that wealthy could have provided the level of plunder that such a large fleet would require while also being a target of sufficient size that would require a small army to take it. Now, there is another place, to the south, called Charmouth, and that was a village that also dated back to the Iron Age. It wasn't as wealthy as Carhampton, but it was on the southern coast, and just down the way from Dorchester. So it might have made for an easy target of opportunity for the Vikingers. The reason that I point that out is because, depending on which translation of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle you read, your views of the details of this fight might vary. See, the trouble is that the Chronicle tells us that 35 ships of Vikingers landed at Carum. 
but we aren't 100% sure where Karim is. Many scholars suspect it was Carhampton, but others claim it was Charmouth. It's one of those things that historians gleefully argue over. And if my opinion matters at all, I side with the scholars who say it was Carhampton. But the point is that in 836-ish, 35 ships landed in West Saxon territory. Now, as we talked about last week, we aren't sure about how many men a Viking ship could hold. Hilariously, I saw one Victorian claim that the force was over 17,000 people, which would have resulted in each ship carrying nearly 500 men. Apparently, the Victorians imagined that Britain was being struck by a fleet of Spanish galleons. But wild 19th century imaginations aside, we're probably looking at somewhere between 1,000 and 4,000 men. And of course, that all depends on how much the scribes exaggerated and how closely stacked the oarsmen were. So even if the oarsmen were loosely arranged and the chroniclers were severely exaggerating, we're still looking at about a thousand trained and probably veteran warriors landing in Wessex with little to no warning. And in actual fact, we're probably looking at closer to two to three thousand warriors. That is a hell of a lot especially for an era where warfare was much closer to gang fights. Now, as you're getting accustomed to, we aren't given a tremendous amount of detail regarding this attack. But we know that the West Saxon forces under King Egbert were on site. And that's fascinating, and it makes me wonder if Egbert was there waiting for the Vikingers, or if his warbands had to be quickly mobilized, and then they were racing to catch up, only arriving after the looting had begun. We know very little. But I imagine that, given the speed of the Vikinger attacks, and the fact that historically the Scandinavian raiders were opportunistic, they would have worked quite hard to pick a settlement that could be taken by surprise. After all, Odin and his Valkyries rewarded the courageous and talented, not the foolhardy. So the target was probably carefully selected, and I suspect that the ships landed with little if any, opposition. You can almost see the longships sliding up the beach, with Vikingers pulling their oars in, grabbing their shields from the side of the ship, and leaping into the water, using ropes to haul the ship ashore. Many of the warriors who were now fighting against the sand that dragged against the keel of the ship would have been veterans of numerous raids and battles. They'd not only trained for this, but they carried out their duties in the field, they knew what they needed to do, and they set about it as quickly as possible. Ultimately, this would have been another day at the office for many of them. And they knew that they needed to move as fast as possible if they were going to be able to take their prize with a minimum amount of risk. And we're not just talking about one or two ships, which might be how it looks in your mind's eye right now. No, widen that shot. Look down the shore to the rest of the ships, all carrying similar men, drenched in sweat and salt water as they're pulling the longboats ashore. Now look out to sea, to the host of ships waiting for their turn. The coast would have been bristling with heavily armed warriors, all moving with cold, experienced precision. Now imagine being a lone Anglo-Saxon witnessing this. Maybe you're a scout. Or maybe you're a peasant heading out to gather some food. The panic must have been palpable. And then, once the raiders got their ships ashore, 
they would have prepared to move into the village. Even if there was a runner who was able to warn the villagers, what would have the people made of it? A warning of such a large fleet very well might have sounded like someone was crying wolf. After all, nothing like this had been seen in England before. Not only that, but even if they had advanced warning, and they believed it, the villagers would have had few options. They could run for their lives, but doing so would mean abandoning their homes, their possessions, and their livelihoods. Considering how those on the lower end of Anglo-Saxon life were constantly skirting the edge of complete ruin, leaving everything behind could not have been an easy choice, since it very well could expose them to starvation in the near future. Running would lose them everything except for their lives. And in the long run, it might lose them that too. But staying and fighting against a force like that? It must have looked like suicide. That is, unless they believed in the strength of their god and had faith that their king would come to their aid. Or maybe their king was already there. I mean, this was an estate that was used by the West Saxon royalty. And the Chronicle does tell us that King Egbert and his warbands defended Carum. So either he was already there, which would have been appallingly bad luck on the part of the Vikingers, or he got word of the fleet and he mobilized his forces as fast as possible and raced to catch up with the Vikingers before they could do any serious damage. But the point is that no matter which way this goes, the trauma of this event upon the local population must have been overwhelming. So let's imagine that, given the size of the fleet, the Vikingers have been spotted, and King Egbert and his warbands followed them, arriving shortly after they landed. Accompanying King Egbert would have been the hardened warriors of Wessex. These men were veterans of countless battles. It was through their prowess that Kent, Sussex, and Surrey were conquered. It was their strength of arms that defeated Mercia, the most powerful kingdom in the south. And then on that same year, they forced the submission of Northumbria, the English kingdom that dominated the north. They may have lost their Frankish support, but they were still the Werod. And they were still being led by King Egbert and his Hearthwerod. We don't know how many there were, but this wasn't a furred. It wasn't a collection of hastily trained conscripts. This was the special forces of Wessex, the finest warriors the kingdom could produce, armed and armored in the best material they could get their hands on. The wealth of Wessex had been organized to enable them to spend their entire lives training for one thing and one thing only, war. If anyone in the kingdom was prepared for this threat, it would be King Egbert's Hearthwerod. The more educated members of the Werod may have known that over three centuries earlier, it had been their ancestors who landed on the shores of Wessex, seeking a new life. And there have been wars upon their arrival. But those were wars in which the Saxons were the victors. Over time, they mixed with the local population, created a new culture, abandoned their gods, and grew far beyond anything their forebears could have imagined. And now, every member of the Werod could draw from that heroic past. They were all descendants of victorious warriors. Cowardice was not in their blood. And this land was theirs. 
and they would defend it with their lives. But these Danes were also heavily armed and armored. Just like the Werod, they too had the combined wealth of entire communities supporting them. And just like the Werod, they were the hardened veterans of numerous battles. This would be a battle between the best fighters of both communities. And there were a lot more Northmen. And more were coming out of the ships. And there were still more ships at sea, sailing towards the shore. Oh hell. And the Werod could not count on support from Mercia, East Anglia, or any of the surrounding kingdoms. Even if those kingdoms were inclined to feel positive towards Wessex, which they really weren't, they were far away and had shown that they had little interest in the Viking threat. Wessex was all alone. And it was just the Werod standing between an army of pirates and a terrified community of villagers. Given the size disparity that the West Saxons were probably facing, I would imagine that they immediately organized into a shield wall. King Egbert was an experienced leader and would have recognized that his best course of action would be to adopt a defensive posture and hope that his warriors could hold the line. But the trouble is that that wall only works with direct attacks. If the Vikingers outnumbered them, and they almost certainly did, it would be a simple matter of enveloping the flanks of the West Saxon shield wall and striking at the sides and backs of the men within. This was the first serious Viking attack upon the West Saxons, and they were getting a taste of exactly how significant this threat was. And at the end of the day, King Egbert and his Werod were defeated, and were told that the Danes remained the masters of the field. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle stops the story there, but you have to wonder what became of the people of Carum. The non-warrior peasant class had pinned their entire hopes upon the king's warband. Were they able to escape? Or were they captured and dragged back to the longboats, now condemned to live out their lives as slaves? And as for those that ran, were they able to make it through the lean months that were to follow? Were they able to rebuild and sow new crops? Don't forget that this was a xenophobic period in history. It's not like they could just pick up what was left and relocate to a new village. They would need an allocation of land from a lord, and outsiders weren't exactly trusted. People loved to focus on kings and warriors, but as King Egbert rode home, the suffering of the people who survived the attack at Karim had only just begun and they were probably looking towards the next few seasons with a great deal of anxiety. Two years later, in 838, several things happened in quick succession. First, it seems that at about this point, Aethelwulf, son of Egbert, had a daughter and named her Aethelswitha. So Egbert's dynasty was growing even farther. And with an eye upon the importance of dynastic politics, King Egbert of Wessex returned the land of Malling to the church at Canterbury. Now, why is that important, and what does it have to do with dynastic politics? Well, remember how I told you a few weeks ago about how rich King Egbert was, and how he was seizing lands from conquered territories? It appears that some of the land he seized must have been Malling, 
and he had to give it back to the church for the Archbishop of Canterbury to recognize Aethelwulf, son of Egbert, as the heir to the throne of Wessex. And this recognition, by the way, was formally declared at Kingston-upon-Thames, which just happens to be where the kings of Wessex were crowned. Now, none of the records indicate that there was a consecration, but you'll probably remember that King Offa of Mercia had his son consecrated in a very similar manner. And for this period, consecration was one of the best ways to secure the throne for the next in line. So if King Egbert wanted to ensure that his son would inherit, and he absolutely did, a consecration, probably at the site that was the traditional location for the coronation of the kings of Wessex, was probably exactly what he was after. So all in all, giving Malling back to Canterbury was a smart move, and it seems to have brought the church a bit closer in line with Wessex. And rather than using his own coffers to buy that goodwill, he was able to use the acquisitions that he had gained through conquest to buy the support for his heir from both Canterbury and Winchester. It was brilliant. And this behavior was also key to the success of Egbert's house, because churchmen could not only consecrate heirs, they could also draw up succession documents that would further enforce the royal will, even after death. So while previous kings of Wessex appear to have been focused mostly upon the here and now, Egbert seems to have been looking far into the future. Additionally, thanks to Charlemagne's Carolingian Renaissance, which among other things had promoted the idea that kingship was intrinsically tied to the church, gaining support of the church had become incredibly important. And it was key to maintaining and expanding royal authority. Consequently, Egbert's generosity to the church was politically advantageous. And through his machinations, he was able to obtain their goodwill while losing relatively little wealth, which in turn protected his political flank from rival dynasties. We'll see his son, Aethelwulf, following in that model later on. And as a result of all of this, we're going to see a single dynasty hold power in Wessex for generations. It really is impressive. But... On the Channel, another fleet of Vikingers had set sail for Wessex. And this time, the Vikings had allies. The Cornish were joining the fight. Okay, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can join us on Twitter. Just go to at British Podcast. And you can find a bunch of other communities at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening. <laughs>